Hulk Shield. Recorded live. Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed, episode 298, is recorded live September 15th, 2016. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jolson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan, where it is reminding us it's time to upgrade our undergarments. Joining me this week, we have Kevin Ailes. How are you doing today, Kevin? I'm doing excellent, Darren. How about yourself? I'm doing great. I love this weather. I love its great sleeping weather. Uh, the flies are finally starting to deplete, 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 die off, I guess the term I was looking for, something along those lines. Not fast enough. No, mosquitoes are still in there. They're not leaving anybody alone. But this this cooler weather, and it's probably about the time, if you want to dive all year round, you need to start upgrading those undergarments. And this is the way that we recommend them. We have a post on the website where we talk about how to keep warm in a wetsuit. And a dry suit's kind of the same idea. As it gets colder, keep diving. As you find something that's keeping you a little bit cooler, you upgrade that, then you can dive all year round. Well, you know, there are plenty of tricks to keeping the, uh, you know, keeping the, the wetsuit's warm, you know, and yes. we've, I mean, as I recall, Darren, you were, you were doing ice dives in a wetsuit yes. until recently, weren't you? Yes. Yeah. Until I got that dry suit from you, I, I was doing ice dives in a wetsuit and I've been doing it for a while. And as Mac likes to point out, my wetsuit was not resembling much of a wetsuit. I had holes. I had uh, poked holes in the legs from, uh, you know, swinging over the side of a boat and getting caught on cleats. So I was I was a little ventilated, and I had psyched myself up into thinking that I was still warm. So you can do it. And we have the post, which I'll probably update. That's probably due to be updated again, but we do have a post on the website. If you search in Google on wetsuits, we are one of the top websites in the world to tell you how to keep warm in the wetsuit. Are we? Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Uh, watch the analytics. That's our, our number one article, and we posted that the first year that we had the podcast going, and that one has continued to be, because that seems to be one of the first things people do when they decide they're really going to get into it. It's like, how is a little cold? How do I keep warm? And we give you all the tricks in that article. We tell you how to prime the wetsuit, how to stay warm. And uh, Mac had some good suggestions in the Mud Club newsletter, which if you want to see that, you can visit the Mud Club website, mudclub.scubaobsessed.com. And we have all the newsletters up there for the Mud Club, and he gives some tips on how to stay warm. And one one of the tricks, just to kind of sneak peek, is if you start off warm, it's much easier to stay warm. A mistake that many people make is that they uh, let themselves get a little cool. You know, they don't wear gloves when they're out and about. You know, like if you're diving in the middle of the winter, if you start in the water cold, you've you've already lost. Yeah, I remember, you know, doing my first ice dives with Mac and him breaking out all the, you know, he'd always have a, you know, two-gallon thermos full of uh, hot water and the three-finger three, three gloves. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he had plenty of tricks, and it worked. So, um, although I, I admire, you know, Scuba Tech's gumption here. He's decided he's going to do a ice dive in his wetsuit, and uh, I don't know, I I had neoprene, you know, hood and gloves for my first ice dive, but actually, I think I my first ice dive I did have a have a dry suit, so um, I, I picked up a good used one, which I got a few dives on, which um, is the one you have now, and 
you know, that's the, you know, those Vikings like you have, you know, you take care of them and they last you a long, long, long time, you know, and they're, um, there's quite a few of them still around, you know, they're, they're, they're good units, they're good units. Well, I tried to send you a link to that post and I, all I did was send you a link to Google. <laughs> so here, let me try this again. This one, at least this time is the, uh, link to the actual okay. article. There we go. Okay. And that is, I won't say it's award winning, but it, in fact, there's a, there's a photo there is uh, Max in the hole in the triangle. There's me holding the the triangle together because that's a very important thing to do when you're you're resealing a hole. And then there's uh, Jim, my other dive buddy. And behind that, you can look in that photo. You can see two jugs. Now, those are my two jugs. I had a red jug and an orange jug. I, I was really into this. I don't know why. I guess because when when that's all you've got, that's what you do. But my uh-huh. red jug, I would get that. I would boil water on the stove and put that in the red jug. And then the orange jug was water as hot as it would come out of the tap. And then I would put both of those into an actual cooler just to make it easier to transport. And that's what I would use. You know, you'd, you'd, uh, you could cut it and prime it and do all sorts of things, which is covered in the article. Mm-hmm. Now, awful lot of preparation for a 20-minute dive, but <laughs> yeah. so be it. Yeah, yeah I, I want to say that about the longest I ever did an ice dive was about 30 minutes. Uh, but that's not too much shorter than the dry suit divers now now the way to do it and we should i'll do is i'll update this wetsuit article but the i also want to do a dry suit article and the dry suit article will include the invention that our dive buddy bob has which is electric undergarment Mm -hmm. and that that's the way yeah but i'm just waiting for him something to go wrong and come (laughs) out of there with with real curly hair so i was i was at you i laughed when you say that but i was thinking the same thing and Bob's are very proficient with uh, when it comes to technical items and diving. Oh yeah, very much, very uh, much. But I was I was thinking the same thing. I'm thinking there's just it's you're adding another layer of complexity to it. But uh, it, yeah, but you know, ice diving is it's some real practical skills out of it. You know, mm-hmm. one of the things which I really like about it is it keeps your deep water skills fresh. Okay, because you know when you're down there. In the winter time, you know, yeah, it, it, the water is not frozen. It's it's like thirty six degrees when you're down there, so it, it's plenty chilly. But you know, our early season dives on you know Ironsides or Ann Arbor, you know, when you're getting down there, you know, hundred feet plus in April, uh, yeah, it's going to be sub forty degrees. So if you do a few ice dives during the winter time, it keeps you pretty fresh for doing wrecks and. Uh, it's very much the same conditions. It's, it's not nearly as deep generally. I mean, I don't think I've ever done an ice dive deeper than, what, 70, 60 feet there, I think. We, we usually get there at uh, Lake 16. Yes. Yeah, and when you, now that you mention so, it, that's I mean, probably the the deepest I've gone on ice dive. I, I've actually been to the bottom of Lake 16 uh, on an ice dive. We, we went we went down to the platform. We started taking a line out. We did, uh, and it's a legendary dive of probably about four or five years ago, and I'm, I know we covered it in a podcast. But we did a modified ice dive where it was so clear, we just had a line down to the platform. Because you could, at the bottom of Lake 16, look up and see the hole. Mm-hmm. And we had done the, where we did the, the pattern in the ice, uh, the snow, where we shoveled it in spokes. So you okay. could look up and all the, uh, if, if you imagine like a ship's wheel or a compass, they all pointed to the center. And you could see that forever. And that was just a, that was just a beautiful dive. I mean, other than the fact that you have to remember if you're 80 feet over, even coming straight up, you're still 80 feet from the hole. So, you you know, we had bailouts and other precautions. But that was one of the few opportunities I've had to do an ice dive, ice dive, but not on a line. 
Yeah, I, I think with Patty, um, you know, they, they look at it as the, the rule of 130 applies. And so if you are in, you know, if you're 80 feet down from the from the hole, then you shouldn't be more than 30 feet uh, horizontal. No, I mean, 80 feet down, 50 feet over. You can be no lot more than 130 feet from the surface, okay? So, well, I, I don't know what Patty has to say, actually, about, about ice diving. I'm just, I'm just kind of applying their, their rec diving mm-hmm. standard there. Yeah. I mentioned, you know, our main, you know, uh, scuba tech is a Patty guy. Mm-hmm. And as you progress, you'll probably want to get a, get a rec certificate eventually. And they talk about the, the rule of 130 with Patty always applies, so... If you're yeah. 100 feet down, you can go 30 feet inside a wreck. So. Yeah, I, I'm sure it's something similar, but the, the same thing. I haven't actually taken the ice dive course. Uh, I know I know the way you're supposed to do it, and then I have the way that we've sometimes done it. Yeah, you know, but so much of this is kind of regional stuff, you know. I mean, right. uh, you know, I mean, uh, Patty's going to say it different than Naui or uh, SSRI. I mean, it's just no matter what, you're going to have – you know, someone's always got a different idea, a better idea, depending upon your point of view, really. So, uh. Well, let's go ahead and get into the news. We have a list of articles. Thank you for everybody who's in the chat room tonight. We have Scuba Tech, who's joined us. He's over there in the Chicagoland area, one of my favorite places to go. And the first article up is we actually have a gear recall. If you have a Zegel BC, you need to go and check on it. Go visit the Zegel website and see if it's been recalled. The recall is involving the Zegel brand Grace and Element BCDs. The Grace model is black with light green accents and has the logo Z Grace in the right side pocket and left shoulder. The word Zegel Sport on the left side pocket. The Element model is black with red accents and has the logo Z Element in the right side pocket and the left shoulder. The word Zegel Sport in the left side pocket sold at authorized Zegel Dealers and www.ziegel.com. It retailed for approximately $412 for the Grace model, about $490 for the Element model. And it was probably bought between September 2015 through August 2016. The manufacturer is Hush, H-U-I-S-H, Outdoors, LLC, Salt Lake City, Utah. The buoyancy control device can suddenly leak, causing a loss of flotation, which they consider to be a drowning hazard. There are about 1,400 BCDs that are affected by the recall, and 50 of these were sold in Canada. So if you're in the Great North, uh, make sure you look at your BCDs as well. The firm has received one report of a seam failure in the BCD resulting in the air leakage. No injuries have been reported. The remedy is stop using the BCD and return them to a Hush Outdoors or an authorized Zegel dealer for a free replacement. So uh, I would just recommend going to www.siegel.com or your local dive center and have them take a look for you. You know, I've got to hand it to them, though. One episode, and they're doing a full recall on the product. That's 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 being conscientious. I mean, granted, we're dealing with people's lives here, and you should be, mm-hmm. but one report of a seam failure in a VCD resulting in air leakage doesn't say anything about a catastrophic failure or anything. It just was leaking at a seam. So... Based upon those words, what comes to my mind is, uh, you know, you got a got a little bit of bubble coming from the seam. You know, probably not enough for any of us to board a dive, even though we should have. <laughs> but uh, you know, still uh, a seam failure, an air leakage, no injuries reported. But from that one episode, they are doing a recall on the whole line. Yeah, probably. I'm again. I'm kind of reaching here, extrapolating. Probably both of these units use the same bladder. 
and mm-hmm. that's why they're calling them recalling them both back. They're similarly priced, uh, so they're probably you know the, the similar line. And but you got to give them credit there. You know, yep. potentially could be bringing back you know fourteen hundred units here <laughs> to do this. I mean, um, that's that's you know they're very concerned about their quality. They're yeah. very concerned about keeping about, about repeat customers. <laughs> they want well, you coming back. So, well, they, they want you to be alive to come back. So if, yeah. if if you multiply the numbers out, you're talking somewhere around $600,000 uh, in retail value for those. And uh, I'm not sure what kind of deal they're giving you if they're giving you a replacement. What's your replacement? You figure that uh, what they're probably doing is just breaking even on the original profit. But they've got accountants and people. I mean, you'd like to think that it was just out of the goodness of their heart, but we know a lot of times some of these decisions can be augmented with uh, what's the cost. And at less than a million dollars, you know, if if they had a defect that went out there, uh, they it was reported to them and they did nothing about it, you know for sure that the survivors would be suing for a lot more than that. So I'm sure that it was partially underwritten by an insurance company and they were given uh, in collaboration. Mm-hmm. those companies they decided it made sense to do the recall uh well well and they probably know okay they sold 1400 of them um how many of those are going to come back you know 20 percent mm-hmm. tops not that many are going to come back i mean yeah you know, what, what part of the retail chain because it looks like they were selling these these are all the way until august of this year which to me t- says that uh you know that was probably about the time it was reported so then they went and looked at and made something because we don't know. We don't have enough information, but it's possible it could be how they were stored, how they were molded, how they were seamed. Uh, also, even though only one was reported as an issue, they probably had some sort of batches or, you know, they called up stores and said, hey, send them back. Let me let us take a look at them. And they must have decided that it was more than a single occurrence uh, to be willing to do the whole recall. Uh, or I don't know what they can do depending on is it, is it possible that they could get them back, look at them, and replace them. I mean, is it like replace the bladder? They could look at the bladder and go, eh, you know, here, we'll put a different one in. But, uh, well, you know, good I, for them. Anytime anybody uh, stands behind their, their product and does a well, recall, I don't, that's good. Well, I don't know how art, accurate this article is, but it sort of gives the impression that you bring it in, you're going you're gonna to walk out with, with a brand new one. So um, Yeah, well, I, I think that's, yeah, I, that some... Or a free replacement. So you bring it into to a Zegel dealer, mm-hmm. dealer for a free replacement. You walk in with your, with yours, and you're gonna walk, you're gonna walk out with the new one. Hopefully, not the same model. <laughs> so, uh, or if it is the same model, it's one with the upgraded bladder or whatever they've done to it to yeah, make it so. Yeah, you, yeah, we don't know. Um, which is unfortunate. Sometimes you'd like to know, you know, what what it was yeah. that that caused the issue. Yeah, I, I've, I've got a. A Zegel um, wing that I'm very fond of. You know, it was kind of tough getting used to it, but now that I'm used to it. I, I love it. And then I've got a kind of a ratty old Ranger that um, you know it's been around a lot, <laughs> but it still <laughs> it still does the job. So, mm-hmm. well, you got to think about with you've got how we dive and people in the club dive, and then you got your average divers, people who they go sign up for the course uh, as the course the dive shop talks them into buying a bunch of gear. You buy the gear, and then you do less than 10 dives, and you're done diving. So that's usually the model. So when you have a, have something, maybe that's what we need to do. We need to be we need to be endorsing some products. You know, send us some some gear. We'll try it out, and if it survives a couple of years with us, then then you know it's good. Well, you know, we are kind of the crash test dummies. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, we're, you know, we've I, been pretty hard stuff. So. I've been pitching that for years, and it's yet to happen. But yeah, always a first time. And in California, we have poachers fined for illegally taking abalone in the Southern California area. 
This is stemming from a September 2015 enforcement case. Wildlife officers assigned to patrol boat Thresher discovered two men poaching abalone from Catalina Island. A Los Angeles County District Attorney subsequently prosecuted both individuals. Hiwan Chai, 75, of Los Angeles, was charged with taking and possessing six pink abalone. Uh, Chai pleaded no contest to all six poaching counts. He was ordered to pay the court $61,626 in fine and penalties and $1,000 to the CDFW Preservation Fund. Additionally, all of his scuba equipment was forfeited by the court and his fishing privileges permanently revoked. Jim Chai Jong, 58, of Garden Grove, was charged with taking and possessing two pink abalone, three garden the three green abalone and four spiny lobsters out of the season, as well as attempting to destroy evidence. Jong pleaded no contest to all the abalone and lobster charges. He was also ordered to pay the court fines of $61,626 in fines and penalties and $1,000 to the CDFW Preservation Fund. His scuba gear was forfeited by the court and his fishing privileges permanently revoked. An extraordinary amount of time and effort has been investigating and helping Southern California abalone populations rebound, including the sacrifice of honest abalone harvesters who cannot currently fish for abalone south of San Francisco, said CDFW Law Enforcement Assistant Chief Mike Stefank. Years ago, abalone poaching laws were significantly strengthened as part of an overall recovery plan to protect California's abalone populations, but even so, we've seen an increase in poaching crimes. Once we find the offenders, we rely on the diligence of district attorneys, officers, and courts to ensure justice is served. Successful prosecution such as these will hopefully serve as a deterrent for anyone considering committing these crimes against the environment. All of California's abalone species are struggling, including two of the federally list of endangered species. Disease predation, slow reproduction, and poaching have necessitated the moratorium on abalone harvest south of San Francisco Bay since 1997. Red abalone populations north of San Francisco are the only populations stable enough to supply very limited recreational harvest. Anyone believes they've witnessed unlawful hunting, fishing, or pollution is encouraged to call CalTIP, CDFD's Confidential Secret Witness Program at 888-334-2258 or send a text to TIP411. Both methods allow the public to preserve wildlife officer, uh, provide wildlife officers with factual information to assist with investigations. Callers may remain anonymous if desired, and a reward can result from successful capture and prosecution. Well, hopefully somebody got a reward for this one because that's a significant amount of money, and I'm guessing that because of the nature of it, it was pretty blatant, and that's why they did the full crime. Yeah, well, you see, okay, so we've got one guy had six, the other guy had uh, two, three, four, um, you know, so uh, nine animals. So you had a total of uh, 15, 15 illegally taken animals here for, you figured the value of the scuba gear involved here. We've got easily uh, $130,000 in fines here. Yes. Over $130,000 in fines over 15 animals. So that's, you know, not far from $10,000 fine per animal they took. Mm-hmm. Uh, sounds like some of these, okay, they're talking about currently the reds are the ones that can be taken in season. But that's only and north of uh, San Francisco. I'm guessing, let's see, where they where were these? Two, these are two Southern California men, which they wanted to point out, Los Angeles area. So they're in an area that it's not legal any time of the year since the late 90s to take. So it's, it, it, it's in the range of like taking a, a, any other protected species. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. It's like up here in Michigan. And a lot of the Great Lakes takes. Like, say you say I went out of season and I shot a deer. Uh, it's there's going to be a fine. I'm going to forfeit my hunting gear. 
but it's not a lifetime ban for hunting, and it's nowhere near the penalties that they've got for this. So part yeah. of that is because it's California, and the other part of it is because of a, uh, you're hunting an endangered species. Yeah, yeah. This is like you know hunting a, a, a lake sturgeon here or something, or you know something which uh, genuinely protected year round. You, you never hunt. Well, yeah, and, and and you have no excuse, and you have no real argument because you can't say oh i didn't know because it's never yeah. been legal i mean the only way you didn't know is you didn't look which kind of indicates that they probably didn't even have a fishing license <laughs> so that bears in mind which we, we cover these stories quite frequently uh, and it just goes to show that you do not want to be taking things that you shouldn't both animals and objects uh it, it usually never fails at least once a year somebody from our dive club will be pulled over from the dnr just to do a friendly check and whether you've got anything or not, it's always an uncomfortable feeling because you, you kind of, at one hand, you're glad that they're out there looking, but you're kind of like, well, why would you think that I'm taking something? Well, and it seems the DNR is a lot more involved now when it comes to divers than they used to be. Um, you know, someone correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, I don't know, all my diving, you know, I've only been diving for three years. I got 323 dives on me now, but um, I have never been stopped by the DNR and investigated about artifacts. Until this season, and I had back-to-back uh, dives where the DNR was checking us over for artifacts. Well, you know what, um, what I, I found interesting, because I know where you were stopped. That was the exact same place I was stopped two years older or older earlier in about the exact same location and time of year. So I don't know if maybe because they're spread pretty thin. I my my wife works in animal control and they work quite closely with the DNR and they are very short-handed in Michigan. In fact, they had an officer in the county I'm at retire early for whatever reason. I good good for you if you can retire early. But it takes them three years to get a replacement for that agent who retired. And I don't know if it's a combination of just that, that not that many people out there, they're not coming out of the schools, or if that's the amount of time it takes them to hire, train, and get into the area. But I know that they're shorthanded, so I'm guessing that they probably pick certain times of the year and say, yeah, they have the checklist, and they say, okay, time to go look for the shipwrecks. Uh, and they, they try to get as many stops in as they can at a certain amount of time. But I've been we've been stopped right where, where you were out. It seems like South Haven, which seems to make me think that that might be a a place where they're regularly going in and out. Well, I think it's possible. I, I suspect they actually were looking for fishermen when they approached me. Um, <clears throat> they uh, oh, they yeah. were up on the they were up in the parking lot, and I pulled in. And honestly, my bow light had gone out. I know that uh, working when I started coming in, but uh, I took a lot of spray coming in, and I guess my bow light got wet, and it sorted out. And uh, you know, they were actually very friendly, polite guys. You know, they were, you know, they they didn't at all feel, make me feel like I was a, a scoundrel or anything. They just approached me and, hey, you know, did you know your bow light was out? And like, yeah, I just, I'll get it fixed ASAP. It was uh, working earlier, but it just quit. Um, and they walked out of my boat and they, um, they were looking at me for, you know, asked me how, how my fishing was. And no, I wasn't fishing. I was diving. And oh, really? I don't suppose you have any artifacts in there, do you? And they got the flashlights out and they're all looking over the boat. And I'm, I'm like, well, hey, gentlemen, um, I'm one of the good guys. <laughs> uh, warrants aside, you have full permission uh, from uh, from me to look my boat over. I don't even want to even be considered looked at as one of those artifact thieves. Uh-huh. You want to look? I've got nothing to hide. I will open up any wall, port. You don't need a warrant you, for, 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 for my word. Take uh-huh. a look. I'll show you. And, um, you know, they didn't take a look in any of, of the, of the um 
of the wells or anything. They just kind of shone their lights in and, you know, hey, just make sure make sure you get that light fixed ASAP. And I did. You know, lights all fixed and good to go now. And uh, they were just guys doing a job. You know, no oh, big yeah. deal. Yeah, I, I've got family members who are DNR agents, and it's a, it's a tough job. They're covering a huge amount of area, and they've got a large mandate. Um, when when they, they came up on us, we had just come up from uh, the barge there and crane and what i and i at the time i was thinking maybe they didn't realize there was a wreck here because i'm because i know that uh you know like in berrien county the uh the agents they know where havana is they know where rockaway is and it's on their gps so when they're out there looking they can see what wrecks are where uh but that was probably not not many people knew about where that that crane was you know msra knew uh, Wolf's uh, dive shop knew, and they had been telling divers so they could go out and dive on it. Uh, but there was not a lot of people, so I was kind of just thinking that maybe it was a case of them, you know, kind of a little puzzled as why we were diving there. They had us, they, 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 you know, they, they called over, made sure everybody was out of the water, uh, had us, uh, you know, asked us if we had anything, and they had us pull up all our tagline. Because uh-huh. we have tag lines hanging in the water for tying off gear and getting out of the boat. So we pulled them up and showed them that there was nothing dangling underneath the boat, you know, no no objects being recovered. Mm-hmm. So it, yeah. yeah, it's now the the first time I got checked over this year, though, I was actually was on a charter, and there was a second boat there. Who uh, I'm not going to really give too much of her story. Mm-hmm. I'm going to see if I can get her to tell the story herself at another date. Yeah, uh, but uh, I will say that the first time I got checked over this year, they was on a charter, and we had another boat out with us, a pretty well known boat in the area, actually. And the, the the DNR came up on us, and um, they pulled up to the other boat first. And I heard across the water, you know, uh, "Get your hands off my boat!" <laughs> uh oh, uh oh. She, she was she was not impressed. Uh-oh. And I'm not going to say too much about it, but I will say <laughs> this is somebody uh, ex- excellent charter captain, but but. Uh, don't mess with her boat. Don't mess with her dog. Okay. Well, <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, I can understand some people don't like that, but my, my approach, like how I've told my, my kids, uh, and we're probably getting way off track on, onto another soapbox. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 and I have a background in law enforcement. I was in law enforcement for 10 years. Uh, but I always tell my kids who are now driving, uh, when you get pulled over, it's yes or no, sir, whatever you want, whatever you want to check, it's fine. If you have a problem with them, if you think you've been disrespected, you deal with that when you get back home. We'll talk about it and we'll take action as necessary. But in the situation, at the moment, you want to give them full access because there's no way that any that you being uh, belligerent or ornery or insulted is going to work in your favor. Uh, I mean, I mean that, that's that's how people get shot. Yeah, it's, and I'm sure on the water, I mean, you, you, it's misunderstanding. You know, it's people seeing things that they didn't think they see, like we just had this tragedy where a teenager was shot for a BB gun. But if you act like a thug and you pull something out of your waistband that is black and shaped like a gun, that officer has every expectation to shoot you. So you, you, want, you want to be as compliant as possible. And then later you can decide that, you know, you were picked on and, you know, you, you let your attorney go and do stuff and, and that, that happens. The vast majority of law enforcement are guys and gals doing a job who got into it for all the right reasons. Um, yeah, just like any profession, you've got some overblown type A's. You know, you, you've yeah. got some people with bad attitudes. Hey, I'm a mailman for a job, you know. <laughs> we, we, got, <laughs> we 
we got I mean, pent up everywhere. Okay, I mean, Neil, man, you, like, you've you've got your own threatening position. I they, they used to, they used to call it going postal. Uh, I'm not going to comment on that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, it's like okay, the vast majority of law enforcement, and, and I'm going to say all law enforcement deserve our respect. Yes, you have a couple bad apples out there. Okay. But they're such a minority, okay? And you've got to give everyone the benefit of the doubt, okay? They're approaching you, and yes, they're in a position of authority, okay? And they deserve your respect. They deserve your compliance, okay? Go along with it. You know, I mean, yeah, you're right, Darren. If you think that your rights have been violated, you know, addressing it in the guy's face is probably not, not the place to do it, okay? No. Uh, and, and I find, like, you know, hey, just be polite. Yes, sir. No, sir. Um, hey, we're good tonight. Uh, and generally, they'll just look you over and you're, and you know make sure that you're not you know you don't have any any, any bodies in the well or something you know and then you're good to go you know no bodies a, yeah yeah okay so, well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well I, no we, that was not, that was not a Freudian slip <laughs> well, maybe next time we're on uh, Kevin's boat we'll have to look for bodies. Well, my the, the wells in my boat are pretty small. They're going to have to be small bodies or in small pieces. So, so yeah, so chainsaw. Look, if you see a chainsaw on Kevin's boat, then you know. Well, and and it just it just appropriate going this next article where the the headline is I could just hear the bones cracking. <laughs> a man fights a crocodile, a crocodile while it crushes his skull. So that is on the case of a bad day. So maybe we say not only law enforcement, but crocodiles. Yes, sir, Mr. Crocodile. Scuba diver found his head in the jaws of a 13-foot saltwater crocodile while spearfishing in Cancun, Mexico. I just got this hand and kept punching inside his mouth, Jonathan uh, Shuneman said. He told uh, KPRC News. And then with his hand, I was hooking his eyes. I could hear my bones cracking, just cracking all the time. A friend pulled him back in the boat and raced ashore after 12-day hospital stay. Jonathan's head was now head together with metal plates, screws, and 200 stitches. He's a Houston native, but lives in Cancun, where he's a scuba diving instructor. He says he's seen the same crocodile in the area where he was diving, and he might see it again. It swam away as he beat him off to free himself. He says he'll be back in the water as soon as his wounds heal. It does not scare me. I've been lost at sea, almost drowned countless times. I'll never stop. So what what does scare this guy? (laughs) (laughs) You know, and this is a case of maybe where, uh, you know, putting the dead fish in your mouth and saying, hey, watch this might not have been a good idea. What is that? No, no, I was just saying. Okay. That's not what he did. (laughs) All right. Yeah. You can send all your complaints to the show at scubaobsessed.com. We'll happily respond. Yeah, I mean, are, are there any groups we have not offended yet here? Not, I mean, no, now we're no, gonna we, have... no, we we still got an hour or so, so we've been, we'll we'll hit them all before the night's over. Oh man! <laughs> if you think this show is at least worth a dollar, visit our website and click over to Patreon. <laughs> is, is this is probably not what marketing experts would say is when we should ask for money, and that's because advertisers find us so toxic that they don't advertise with us. I'm gonna have to phase out for a second. I got to reboot. I'm all locked up here, so. Okay. I'll be back. I mean, I, you're not going to lose me on the call, but you're going to. I'm not going to keep up with you for the next couple of articles here. So. Okay. Well, go ahead and reboot. And. All right. So, no, continue. Don't worry okay. about me. Continue. It's it's amazing what uh, we can do in post editing. As Kevin yeah. goes away, we'll get on to our, our next article. Yeah, I'm, I'm still here in voice, but I just uh, I'm losing my my computer screen for a few minutes here. So, I'll be back.
So Underwater Treasure Hunt has netted $1,600 for St. Jude. The annual Underwater Treasure Hunt was, sell, uh, was held at the Sand Island on Norfolk Lake on August 20th, 65. Divers and their families joined together to raise approximately $1,600 for St. Jude's Research Hospital. The event was hosted by Jordan Marina. Admiral Quay, still there? Yeah, I got one of those. Oh, to do this, you got to answer these five questions. So we're just going to go on to the next one. It's like the Monty Python skit, you know. To uh, you know, what is your favorite color? And we just know. continue on because just, even if you answer the questions, it doesn't let you in. I don't know. I didn't have a lot of patience for Monty Python. So. <laughs> I thought okay, that was a requirement for scuba divers. See, now you've insulted Monty Python fans. I. Insulted Monty Python, not the fans. Oh. A scuba diver finds a wedding ring lost at sea for 37 years and tracks down the couple who lost it. And that's what's amazing today. Go ahead. I was seeing seeing Mac all through that article there. I mean, I can can so see Mac doing that, okay? Oh, yeah. He he, he loves to return stuff that he's found. And it was interesting in the photo, the, the person who found the ring, took a photo of it, and showed the inscription, which had a date on it. But on the other side that she didn't show you, which I thought was very smart, it actually had a name. So as people would call up trying to claim the ring, and she didn't say how many people did, uh, she would know if it was their ring or not uh, based on the name. And she was uh, she screamed when the person told her what her name was. And it doesn't seem to take long in this Facebook-connected world to find somebody. Uh, yeah. You know, well, I'm, I'm sure that that whole seven degrees of separation is a whole lot smaller now with Facebook. Oh, certainly. Um, this says it was a pleasant surprise. More than a material value, the most important thing is symbolic and emotional, as it was the ring that we were married with, uh, she told uh, the newspaper. Jessica first launched her quest to find them in a post that read, I found a wedding ring diving off the island of Benidorm. I wish I could give it back to the owner. It's been lost for a long, long time because it's covered in sediment. Although she wrote the date, she did not reveal the name also inscribed to foil scammers. She's delighted when uh, Johnny, now 60, from uh, Etubo near Zaragoza got in touch. When my wife told Jessica her name, Jessica began shouting with excitement. He explained they'd sent Jessica a photocopy of their family register and a picture of the matching wedding ring to show them that they were the true owners. They were finally reunited with the ring on September 26th, where, they'll, where they uh, will meet. Uh, they haven't been reunited yet. Where they will meet with Jessica in uh, Zaragoza, a romantic city in northern Spain, as opposed to those unromantic cities. <laughs> and they're not the only one who found something. National Geographic was the beneficiary of footage lost at sea for three years. It was returned home. As the story goes, they were using drop cameras. And this is not your average everyday drop camera. We had an article a few weeks ago about a GoPro. This is the scientific version, which is much fancier. And what what they were doing is it was a a camera that they would drop in the water. It had GPS on it and a satellite phone and a record back. Uh, They were putting it in the water. Uh, This was in April 2013. The National Geographic team packed up the cameras and headed to Miami, 150 pounds each. They were designed to submerge down to 3,000 feet. Uh, National Geographic mechanic engineer Alan Turchik and his teammates who worked on the camera's technology for a year joined scientists in an expedition to investigate deep ocean creatures that existed 100 meters below the surface alongside plankton. A strong storm hit in the evening of May 2nd, several miles off the coast. We went out at night to deploy the instrument in the middle of nowhere, this crazy storm. Their sideways rain were completely soaked. We're trying to hoist this thing over the side of the boat, put it in the ocean, remembers Turchik. After physical struggle, the team was finally able to deploy the drift cams. All they had to do was wait. 
We waited on the surface for hours for the cameras to turn back. The cameras outfitted with GPS would broadcast its location via radio beacon once uh, it reemerged. Finally, the team picked up the signal and began racing their boat towards it. We were zipping along the coast of Florida, chasing them in a boat. As conditions worse, it became unsafe to proceed any further. The crew had no choice. They had to leave the camera and go back to Miami. The cameras had been sucked into the Gulf Stream, one of the fastest currents on Earth, spanning the coast of Miami, pushing it out to the Atlantic Ocean towards Europe. The crew watched the GPS and the cameras kept drifting further and further into the Atlantic. Eventually, the batteries died in a satellite transmitter that was broadcasting the coordinates. We thought, they're lost at sea forever. Three years later, the team is contacted by Frenchmen sailing across the Atlantic each year. My dog began to bark. We saw this ball. A turtle appeared to be stuck in a round piece of trash floating in the ocean. As Eric approached the animal, save it, the turtle swam off, leaving the barnacle-covered orb behind. Pulling it from the sea, he realized it was not trash, but a highly technical camera marked with a National Geographic logo and a very faded sticker with contact information for the engineering team. They were several thousand miles from where it had originally been deployed. Getting a camera back was an incredible, amazing thing, as not only the camera survived, but the footage survived as well. I don't know. I'm sure it's digital footage. It's, I mean, that stuff tends to hold up quite well. I'm yeah. not surprised that the footage survived. But. Yeah, it, it, it's it's not that unusual. And that, you know, maybe at this time, because we've seen examples over and over and over again of these SD cards just being able to retain this data. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, and we've had many times, many, several reports here about, about the, you know, the gal who uh, camera was lost and found thousands of miles away, and uh, the camera is still working. I know I personally had one lost in a local lake that was under there for a year, and it booted right up like it had been turned off yesterday. Yeah. I mean, these 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 um, underwater cameras are some serious business these days. Yeah, so. yeah. and uh, they must just, as part of the normal quality control be making them somewhat resistant because you've got people who in normal everyday use are abusing them so they're trying to make them last to where that in some of these type of conditions they still hold up yeah but you know looking at the picture of this camera that's a high dollar piece of equipment there <laughs> yeah. well can you imagine most most likely they had a grant for the equipment they had a grant for the project they had a mission that they were trying to do and a lot of these as part of your project is you're First, you got to come up with the what you want to test. You make the equipment, you put it, you put it in, and then you're counting on having that data come back after it to either prove or disprove or to analyze, see what you can learn. And when you lose this data, you know, it's not, I, I, it isn't clear if they had if they had other uh, drifts so that they had some data to study. But if you have that data study, you you need to find something else to do. And and when you watch the Discovery Channel, these are the these are the ones that didn't make the Discovery Channel because it, it's hard to fill an hour program with uh, you know ten minutes in <laughs> we lost the camera. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't know. That could be a reality TV program. Yeah. Well, maybe they did have some. And uh, you look in the it says to learn more. You go to natgeo.org forward slash grant. So they they were the recipient of some money. So good for them. Hopefully, we'll see something out of it. I love the camera though. Isn't that isn't that a cool looking drop cam? Yeah, it looks like a droid. <laughs> I mean, it does. Like something out of Star Wars, you know? You look at to see some thrusters and move off on its own there. So that is cool. Yeah. Or a satellite that could easily looks like a satellite orbiting. Well, I guess yeah, you can see the solar panels on there almost, but it's just something for the light reflection. I'm sure that's probably something to uh, diffuse the light. Um, I'm guessing, of course, here, but uh-huh. it's. Yeah, I'm sure that's a very high dollar piece of piece of equipment right there we're looking at. So. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's you just don't run out to your local Ace Hardware and and put one of those together. I don't know um, this open ROV stuff. It sounds like uh, looking pretty handy on this thing. It might surprise you. Yeah, well, go for it. <laughs> 
Oh, I haven't given that time to dive lately. Taking care of a sick puppy at home past few oh. days, and I haven't, I haven't got wet since the straits, unfortunately. So, yeah. well, it happens. We all go through those cycles, and and just remember, as as little diving as you've gotten, I've gotten less. <laughs> Usually, well. between you and Mac, I can dive vicariously and uh, keep up on on things. My wife, my my wife was asking me. She goes, "Are you going diving this weekend?" And I'm just, it, it's like if you're not diving every weekend. You get out of the connection. You know, people stop calling you. You are out of the loop. Yeah, you because know, you didn't dive last time. Why would you dive this time? So I was, I was at Sunday, and I'm like, oh, there's nobody diving. So we just need to get better at posting where dives are going on because I, there's times it, it's hard with with teenagers and other things going on to plan eight days out that I'm going to go dive. It's it's more well, of things don't happen and I can get out in the water. Well, basically, most of our dives, you know, they're really not firmed up until. Like two days before, right. because that that's you know where the that's when the when the wind report becomes reliable. Oh yeah. So I think that uh, oh Bob was diving last week. Looked like he went out to um, yeah. what was uh, Diving Lake. So yeah, you, you know, and, and, and I'm, I hate to sound like a diving snob, but I'm to the point now where I'm being picky. You know, it seems like the more I dive, the less picky I am. But it's like when you don't get to dive that much, it's like I I only want to dive good dives. Does that that well, make sense? Yeah, but I don't know. Uh, it's kind of sounding like from uh, Bob's dive out there, um, we might have some more targets out there pretty quick here. Oh, so, really? Hmm. Yeah. You know, so you you kind of like turn your you know turn your nose up at dive in Diamond Lake, but well, it, they weren't talking Diamond Lake when when I originally saw the post. It was uh, like Gull Lake or something. Which so part of the problem can be is like if I'm going out in Lake Michigan, I have no problem burning up a whole day on it. But if I'm gonna die, if I'm gonna do a thirty, forty minute dive in an inland lake, I don't want to dive for two hours to get to the to the pond that we're gonna go diving in. So well, I don't yeah, know. but, a, but I, I mean, isn't a wreck a wreck a wreck? I mean, what's it matter whether you're going, you know, six miles out to see the Havana, or you're going, you know, a mile and a half out to see uh, the South Bend? You know, I mean, it's still uh, really the, the visibility is usually so bad at the Havana that <laughs> you probably see as much. At Diamond Lake, I mean, um, and it sounds, I mean, because, I don't know, there was a post that I made about, you know, us diving at the Straits, Mm -hmm. which I guess a guy who lives, who's also on the Mud Club page, uh, saw Bob's boat out to Diamond Lake and was asked, you know, made a post asking if that was Muddy's out there, and Bob responded yes, and came back with sort of some quite a bit of crosstalk, and some pictures came up of old boats on Diamond Lake, Mm -hmm. and... Do you realize, Darren, there are potentially potentially three steamboats in little old Diamond Lake? You know that it's interesting, but I'm not surprised. Uh, and it, it goes back to the history of these of these lakes. You know, we we tend to forget in our modern society that uh, people 150 years ago wanted to move around a lake, and Diamond Lake from very early on was a very popular mm-hmm. Chicago tourist spot. And there's the, you still have that ferry, which has been used in a lot of car uh, ads. It was a very photogenic spot for doing car spots. And you had steamships. Every lake had several of them, and it ferried people around. And with Diamond Lake, you had the island, and people wanted to be on the island. You had a, the tourism trade and the, the steamships. Now, in, in my mind, when you say steamship, I'm thinking Titanic or Chikora or something. And these are more like long canoes with a steam engine midship well you know but you look at the pictures i mean uh you know if you go to you know the, the mud club 
Facebook there and you look up the post that I made about um, rough water diving the uh, all the oh what the heck was it? It was a ship by the bridge up there. We'd go the Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can follow that post down. And we've got a whole bunch of pictures of a bunch of different boats now out there on Diamond Lake. And these aren't glorified canoes. I mean, these are, you know, 40-footers, you know, good-sized boats with capacity to carry a lot of people on them. Uh, You know, and something for you, Scuba Tech, to think about uh, over there in Chicago. Um, It's something I've kind of thrown out. I've done a couple of historical talks here and there. Uh, you got to realize that, uh, you know, going back to the early 1800s, all right, any uh, lake that's you know approaching a thousand acres or larger within uh, a half a day's train ride out of either Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland, any of these large populated cities, uh, they would set up all these resorts on them. You know, kind of reminiscent of what you saw in Dirty Dancing. Okay, mm-hmm. those big, uh, you know, single single building lodges with you know dance halls, entertainment, and bands, yes. organized activities, just just exactly like what you saw in Dirty Dancing, that same kind of establishment. Yep. And they would set these up on any lake large enough to have good, clean water and, you know, idyllic settings and, and big, picturesque places to escape, and which pretty much was anything, you know, approaching a 1,000 acres or larger. Yep. Although I know that there's plenty of small lakes that have them as well, too. Yeah, Papa Lake had them. Uh, you had yeah. uh, the uh, in Saugatuck there. They had the uh, they had one, uh, you know, Holland. Uh, it, it really, every port, every like you said, inland lake of a few thousand acres uh, was yeah. certain to have one. And and they all seemed to have the same name. They called them the Pavilion. Yeah. Well, and you know, us with air conditioning, we don't think much about it today. But you know, pre air conditioning, you, you have a lot of nights where it's you know hot, just can't sleep, and uh, remember out on the lake, even if it's just an inland pond, it's 10, 15 degrees cooler out on the lake because, you know, the water attracts all those, you know, you get a convection, you get a conver- I'm not sure what the name of the current, but you get cold air dropping up from higher up onto mm-hmm. the lake and the lake cools stuff down as well. So you've always got, you know, markedly cooler air on the lake. So they'd set up these large floating pavilions out there uh, with a steam driven propeller so that things could move around. And basically, it would often be just a, a floating dance hall with the band and liquor, and they would go out and cruise the night, well, cruise the lake all night long, uh, and party and get drunk and all the things that come along with that. And but it was a huge attraction. And if any of these anybody who was anybody that was being successful in this business had one of those large floating dance pavilions, and uh, you you look it up and you'll you'll you'll. If there's a lake you're interested in, uh, start Google the name of the lake and dance pavilion, steam barge, any of these kind of words which would indicate something about a uh, um, a floating uh, dance hall or you know excursion boat out on that lake, and you'll be amazed at what you start coming up with. And you know you're not going to get a lot of detailed information from Google on this. Okay, you're going to get enough so you get some really good keywords to go down and bug your librarian about. Now. Librarians love to get bugged about this stuff, by the way, because most of the time they're they're down there filing and cataloging and things, and they, you know, not not all diminishing the work they do, but you get something, you know, a targeted historical search, and these guys are on the spot and gals. I mean, they will get your information for you in duplicate and triplicate. So, um, you know, and then now you got to go out and find it. And uh, with these boats 
outlived their usefulness, they would uh, take them out and dump them out there. And it's yeah. amazing how many of them got dumped during Prohibition. Mm-hmm. You know, something we don't hear about is, uh, you know, you know, Ken Burns does a wonderful series on Prohibition. Okay, opened my eyes up a lot about what was going on prior and during and after Prohibition. Great stuff on the Bolstead Act, okay? Uh, but it really did hurt the legitimate hospitality industry. Uh, you know, these places, they weren't making a ton of money to begin with. And all of a sudden, you take out the liquor. And that might have been their total, you know, in the black margin right there is gone now. And see so many of them, including the one in Kalamazoo, the one uh, that I used to, I've been researching out there on Woods Lake, went out of business in 1925 during Prohibition, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, You see uh, so many of them folded that time. And also the Great Depression hurt them a lot. You know, you you do have some of them that went into the 70s, you know, like the the one at Silver Lake, well, the one at Silver Beach there in St. Joe went into the 70s. You know, you've got one in Grand Rapids that Ramona Park went into into the 1950s, you know. Um, You know, some of them did did outlast, you know, those different, um, you know, inhibitions to uh, having fun. But, uh, you know, once... The floating dance pavilion, steam barge, excursion ship was no longer profitable. It sat at the dock. High maintenance. You got lots of seams to, to maintain and boilers to maintain things. Pretty soon it's a derelict. And they take them out and dump them. Yeah. And the engine may have been been scrapped and put on something else or just got melted down. And maybe it's paper clips today. I don't know. But you look and you'll find these shipwrecks. They are. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it's a derelict. Probably nobody died on it. You know, there may not be a big romantic story with it, with it going down. But uh, you'll find these ships in about any lake approaching 1,000 acres within a half a day's train ride out of a large city. There you have it. There's your yeah. homework. <laughs> so, yeah. well, so, th- sorry, th- Darren. <laughs> no, that, that's fine because that kind of just uh, leads into uh, other conversations. But, you know, my, my grandfather who owned and managed marinas, this is a normal course of business for them. We didn't have the environmental laws like we have now. And you had your marina space. So I've got a marina. It's got 70 spots. You pay for the spot, the spot closest and most convenient and most prestigious. You paid more than the spot farther away. So if you had somebody who didn't pay you or was trying to save money, it might they might not even be at the dock space, they would be moored out. They would have a buoy off to the edge of the marina, and they would start tying up boats there. And if you had a working boat, you know, say you're the local tugboat guy and you've got a couple tugboats and you buy a new one, well, you've got your old one there. And there's still stuff of value on it. You still have lights. You still have gear. Maybe you store some stuff that you don't want to put on the other one. And so you would just moor it out there, and there would be a line of these boats. And uh, he had the marina there in Saugatuck, and you've got the bridge. And one side of the marina, which is now condos, uh, was marina. And the other side of the bridge was just open wetland and river. And I can remember as a kid, we'd drive over the bridge, and there was seven or eight boats. And I always thought those boats looked so cool sitting over there. And I'll tell you something, those boats never moved, but you can't see them today. What happened is they just sat there, and if they needed a valve, they would you know, motor out to the to the boat, pull a valve off, go use it on something else. And one day you would have a, a little windstorm and some rain, and it lost its ability to float, and it sank right where it was at. Uh, and some of the muddies over the years, uh, even here in St. Joe, uh, they would go and dive some of these spots at the edge of the marinas, 
And they would find that what would happen is a boat would, would be there. It would sink there in the river. And then the marina would just park another boat on top of it. They There's been cases where they have found boats stacked on top of each other underwater. So there's a lot of opportunity for shipwrecks in these, in these rivers to find. I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it a bit. And now that, you know, with uh, you know, side scan technology, uh, not requiring a house payment. I mean, right. basically, it's it, it's a house payment and it's paid for, okay? You, yes, you, you make not, one house payment. Yeah, I mean, uh, tell you, if you want to get, you know, a Klein, you know, what the pros are using, uh, you're looking at around $65,000 for one little babies, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that, that, that puts you on, you know, you learn how to use it and it puts you on pars with the pros. Uh, or you want to get a Marine Sonics, you're looking at like half of that. But you can actually... You know, there's been quite a bit of stuff found with a hummingbird, okay, or a Lawrence, or, you know, basically a unit you buy off the shelf from any sporting goods retailer. And there are limitations to it, uh, significant limitations to it. But you learn to work the limitations and deal with it. Uh, and there are ways to minimize them. Uh, you know, you, there are a lot of blogs on people looking, you know, using hummingbirds and the other units for uh, shipper hunting. Uh I don't know what's that one they uh I think it's later on in our conversation um uh, they show up I've seen some pictures of uh that the antelope and I'm curious what kind of unit that was found with 240 right. feet of water um uh, but I'm wondering what that was found with so we'll we'll get there but yep. you, you 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 don't need to be a professional salvager now to go find shipwrecks no. no you don't need that kind of equipment now you can do it you know you're not on par with the pros doing it, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of advantages to a client that you're not going to get with a hummingbird, but uh, you can do it. So, um, oh, that one uh, clue found. What was that one the last year made all the headlines about the toxic cargo they pumped out over there in Lake Erie? Um, oh, there was a barge that sunk over there back in the 19-teens, and they found it, and it was all full of uh, some kind of heavy oil. But they yeah. found that with a hummingbird. <laughs> okay, yeah. I mean... So, yeah, well, it, it's it, you just have to, for one thing, is you have to be at the right spot and you have to look for it. And the difference between the inexpensive one and the expensive ones now is just the distance and the data. I mean, what, what you are seeing with these inexpensive ones is you would have to spend nearly six figures 10 years ago to do the same thing. Uh, just oh, the yeah. improvements in software. And, and really what they're, they're getting is range, you know. We yeah. may have to mow the lawn a few more times than what they would do with the with the fancies. Uh, what well, I ha- what I haven't seen yet is economical magnetometers. Have you? No, I have not. Anybody using magnetometer has got a real thick checkbook. Yeah, yeah. those. Uh, and, and the magnetometers seem to be what the big boys are. You know, they got the side scan, but they're watching the magnetometer. When they see the magnetometer go, then they quick look at the side scan. In fact, that's almost a failure that some of them have. I've heard stories of them. Uh, you know, if you look, read some of Clive Cussler's books on shipwreck hunting, they've they've got a couple instances where it was somebody reading the paper tapes back when they were doing it on paper uh, later on, and then going, "Who missed it?" Oh, and you know, there are several big name outfits that still use paper tapes, by the way. So <laughs> don't 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 uh, push off paper tape too much because I, well, I know it's, it's guys just a, it's, just, well. it's a way of form. It's just a way of storing that information. And once you get an eye for whatever, whatever your unit's generating out, why change it? So unless you're getting some benefit, yeah. uh, but a magnetometer is, is kind of what, because everything we're looking for, uh, what, what, you know, my theory now on the great lakes of why we're not finding more of the shipwrecks that I thought we'd find by now is that the sands just moved over them. You know, exactly. you got, 
you got 10, 20 feet of sand on top of it, you might as well have 100 feet of sand. You're just not seeing it. And, and, and that's the advantage the magnetometer has is that it's looking through that sand. You know, I yes. know like when, when they found uh, the uh, Widya, it's out off of Cape Cod, a uh, 1717 pirate ship, uh, oh, Samuel Bellamy. Uh, that's you no, know, that is an episode in itself. There, I mean, uh, that 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 guy was something else. But he wasn't Pirates of the Caribbean. This guy was taking no prisoners. Yeah. Um, well, and I'd, but, I'd love to be using a magnetometer in the rivers. Well, I don't know. I think you're going to find so much non shipwreck in the rivers. I think it. I don't know. I mean, I. Yeah. I, I don't know I don't, of any other way we're going to find those cannons that we're looking for in the rivers without a magnetometer. Well. Because we've, yeah. we've got a couple shipwrecks here uh, within a half mile of my house that they dove 30 years ago, but they can't find anymore. And, you know, they got a boiler, and the reason we're not seeing them is because it's under silt or weeds or something, and that magnetometer would sure be the difference. Yeah, it, it would, but you also keep in mind with the magnetometer, you've got to get right over it, okay? Yeah. Um, but then the advantage you have with, with, with the uh, sonar is, uh, you know, particularly – with the higher end units, um, you can look so much wider. You know, I mean, uh, you lose a lot of detail, um, but you can look. You know, you get the professional unit, and these guys. I'm not going to give away all their secrets here by any means, but uh, they're they're looking at a whole lot wider swath than you're the hummingbird. Um, although there are there's potential out there to make a hummingbird look a whole lot wider. So, um, oh, by the way, I just glancing back at the chat room, Darren. Mm-hmm. Oh, that you're not real fond of Diamond Lake, but Scuba Tech will go, will go three hours to get there. <laughs> so come on, man. <laughs> well, I, I see for me, and this, this is this is just how what my my thought process is is that I like to dive Diamond Lake. That's usually one of my first dives of the year. At, once the ice comes off the inland lakes, that's when I dive Diamond Lake. And the shipwreck that we have there, it's a it's a nice little shipwreck. Uh, it's a steamship. There's a boiler. Uh, the objects have been moved together. Uh, by a local dive shop years ago to get them all in the same spot. But that's about a one one dive. So that's a good warm-up dive. You get your boat out on the lake. It's a small lake. You know, if the boat poops out, uh, oh, well, you can paddle. It's not that big. Uh, but once you've done it once in the year, and usually by about May, visibility there has gone from, like if we dive it in March, uh, usually you can get 25, 30 feet. We dive it in May, you've got three feet, four feet. So that's kind of where my bias comes in is I've, I've dove that wreck a, a dozen times and I like to dive it early in the season and it's my, my wake up to the season dive. I love, I love diving it, but this time of year, it's like, eh, not really, not so much. Now, if somebody, you know, if, if somebody's on it and they go, you know what, we had vis of 25, 30 feet, I'm like, oh, you know, maybe it would be good to go out. And the nice thing about Diamond Lake is it's not far from here. I can, you can get over there and, and get on it and see some stuff. You know, if I, if I had a new diver, like somebody who I'd never dove with before, that would certainly be one to do. It's a it's fairly shallow, thirty feet. Uh, there's a communications booth that you can play around with. Uh, so it's 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 nothing to knock, but uh, when you start weighing time and things to do, and just being a little ornery like I can be, uh, it's not it's not one. And, and actually, had I known they were going to Diamond Lake, I probably would have done it. But they were talking about going to Kalamazoo, and I didn't want to put that much time in. Well, it's it's not like it boat for them pretty fast too. I think he had like four guys on his boat pretty quick. So. Oh yeah, Bob Bob doesn't have a problem with it uh, with getting riders on his boat. It's a it's a nice boat. If you if you if you haven't heard us talk about Bob, uh, he's got a nice Zodiac. I I'd, I'd say it's about seventeen feet. 
it's a, yeah. yeah, it's that size where it, it was originally a center console that you would straddle, almost like a jet ski, and there's enough room all the way around. We can put four divers on it. Uh, we've done four divers with two tanks a diver. That's a little much. Four divers is single tank. Uh, three divers is doubles. Yep, that's what likes to run it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's a nice boat. There's something about diving on a on a, on a Zodiac. Yeah, it. If the Zodiac sinks, you've got a bad day because that's uh, it's very stable, very flotation. It's a rib. Uh, it's, it's it's a great diving boat, and and you don't have to worry about dinging it up. I mean, we we, we treat it with respect, but it's boat designed for diving. Uh, and he's added a ladder onto it. As we get older, it's nice to climb up the ladder. But that used to be a, uh, that was kind of your initiation. That was the first boat I dove off of in Lake Michigan. And you had to learn how to uh, get in the boat. And what you did is you get all your gear off and you would learn how to kick, launch yourself up. And you do kind of like a, a gymnast with a pommel horse. And then you would flip yourself into the boat. Uh and your first time on it, you might exhaust yourself trying to get back in that boat because you know, they'd, they'd have to try and tow you in. <laughs> but once you got the technique down, and, and actually I used to say I loved uh, diving the boat uh, when it was a little rough because when you had the waves going just about right, you could time it, and the waves would just about throw you in the boat. But now <laughs> the ladder, you know, just about anybody can get in. Uh, but it, it's, it's a nice boat. It, it moves pretty quick. You can, get, you can get 25, 27 knots out in the water. Um, yeah, I'm I'm pretty impressed with what how it, well it handles the job. I mean, it's not mm-hmm. a very heavy boat, yeah. and it does. I mean, it does. Oh, but Bob knows how to how to run it too. I mean, he knows oh. how to really pick a speed that you know to, that matches the yes. uh, period of the waves. He's pretty good about that. Yeah. Um, my, my my boat's actually the same size as his, and I haven't quite mastered that as well as he has. But I've only had my, this boat for yeah. about eight eight months, so I'm not quite there yet. But I'm getting there. So. Yeah, part of it is knowing which way the waves are going. Are they coming in and out? And he he's, he can time the speed just right. I've been on other boats where people are running about three times quicker than they really should for the conditions, and that will just beat all the fillings out of you when you're in any high high chop. Yeah. Let's see if well, we, we can get back onto our our topic. Uh, zebra mussels. That's what we had. Uh, there was an article somebody was asking, you know, why have not zebra mussels or quagga mussels overtaken Lake Superior. And uh, have, have you had a chance to read this article? No, I've not. No. Okay. So since you haven't read it, what what is your guess? And I bet you you're right. Well, it's not. I've heard several things. The most recent information I've heard is that uh, there is not enough dissolved calcium in the water for them to make their shells. Okay, that's one of the one of three. Yep. Um, the earlier ideas were that the water was too acidic or too base or something with the ph which they did not find welcoming Mm -hmm. so that was one of the things i'd heard um people were saying early on that it was too cold but no i mean we 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 find we find we find quad guys at 300 feet where it never gets above 40 degrees so cold doesn't get to them well here here in this article they talk about the cold so they say that the lake's average temperature is about 40 degrees they said the spawning temperature of the mussels is 60 degrees and optimal test Temperature for larval development is seventy degrees. So I kind of agree with you on that one. It doesn't. That one doesn't seem to make as much sense because uh, once you get below one hundred and fifty feet, it's that temperature anyway. And in Lake Michigan, we have them down two hundred, three hundred feet easy. And yeah. quaggas we've seen will go really deep. So maybe for zebras, they didn't like it down that that far because it's cold. But the the quaggas haven't had any problem. Uh, the the other thing that they were 
talking about was just the nutrients, that they're just not the density of nutrients. They're saying that if you go into the rivers, you may see the mussels, but they're just not seeing them out in the lake. So I think it's a combination of all three, but I still believe that they maybe they haven't found the one thing because it seemed like any of those three, you'd have examples of where they could overcome it. Well, it, it may just be the combination of two. Maybe, maybe they're just finding it to be too hostile of an environment there. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there is the enough nutrients in the water for them, though. I mean, uh, you know, oddly enough, we're, you know, there's, there's quite a bit of organic material in the water when, when you're there. So um, I, don't, I don't think it's, it's a lack of nutrients in the water. I don't, really don't think so. I mean, I, I don't know what I'm seeing in the water, but I know that, uh, sad to say, you know, our most recent trip, our, our worst visibility was Lake Superior. I mean, we, well, had, we had better visibility in Lake, in Lake Huron than we had in Lake Superior by far. I was uh, surprised by that because, you know, the stories, the legends, you know, I can remember as a kid, I've swam in Lake Superior, but since I've been diving, I have not been there. And I can always remember what startled me because, uh, you know, this is, I'm talking the set early 70s, is in Lake Michigan, you couldn't see your toes in three feet of water. Lake Superior, it could be 30 feet deep and you could see it like there was nothing there. Maybe certain times of the year. I don't yeah. know, but I mean, we, we did not have that at all on our last trip. I mean, we had our best visibility we had of our last trip up there was, uh, you know, which was two weeks ago. We had, our second dive on the Eber Ward, we had 50-foot visibility. Eber Ward is in Lake Michigan, uh, quite close to the bridge. 50-foot um, vis there. That was the best we had. Probably the worst we had was, uh, sad to say, um, probably on the Bermuda. No, on the, on, on the Smith Moore, which was in Lake Superior, outside, just outside of Munising. And I'm thinking we had maybe 10-foot vis there, which is really a shame because the Smith Moore is a very, very cool wreck. And I've only dove it twice, and both times the vis has been mediocre. So um, to get a chance to dive it, even in 10-foot vis, it's a very, very cool wreck. The preserves mm -hmm. uh, listed as a barge, but it really it, it was, it was, it's considered a barge just for some insurance reasons. It, it, it's really a ship, okay? And it's very much intact, too. Um, even, even has the rails on it still. Um, nice. Very cool wreck. I mean, this boat... Um, it's it's filling full of sand. The uh, the holds are full of, all full of sand, and the sand is almost even with the deck. Um, but the whole deck is is open up there. Uh, I don't know. There's a kind of a pilot house on the stern where maybe you could do some penetration on. I've never really examined it for that. The windows are kind of small, in my opinion, for doing that. But it's a very much intact uh, like cabin area on the back. Um, you've got this really nice ornate rail all around the stern and in places along the side as well. Um, the hull is completely intact. Um, it's, it, you know, the engines are there. Uh, you can't see a propeller or rudder because it's, you know, just settled in the sand too much to see a, you know, propeller or rudder. Um, it is a cool wreck, but the visibility is usually mediocre at best. Or of course, I've only been there twice. So, Smithmore, cool wreck out of Munising, Lake Superior. Excellent. But once wow. again, I've got us off track. My bad. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's easy to do. Uh, we, I think we start off off track. Uh, it's been, it's been a are... great diving season. We've had a lot of good dives in the club. I hope our listeners have as well. Yeah. So let's uh, let me see. Is there any articles? You, you let's let's go ahead and cut the article short. But you want to talk about the iron sides? Yeah. Let me pull that up here real quick. Here, um, I understand that um, this is actually the, the anniversary of the iron sides going down. Mm -hmm. so, so the iron sides is a, is a wreck that I have to say it was my first in. And I've only been diving seven years or so. Uh, that was one of my first wrecks that had any sort of enclosure on it. 
and it is broken up to the point to where it's pretty well open now. Uh, but it's 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 a beautiful wreck. It's at 120 feet, so it's not for your. It's still in recreational range, but it requires a little bit more preparation. I, I can remember coming down the anchor lines. We had visibility, which the old timers would say was outstanding. I had about 25, 30 feet that first time. And as you're coming down the line, you look up and you can't see the surface, and you look down and you can just see. Uh, there's two boilers. One was called Jack, and one was called Jill. And you could just see them slowly come into view. And that was one of my best experiences diving was the first time on the Ironside. Yeah, I've had that same ethereal moment there. I mean, when you come down the line, you know, typically the visibility on the surface is far less than what it is as you get deeper. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Ironside, it's uh, 125 to the sand there. But it just seems, I don't know, you reach the boilers, I want to say about 95 feet. Well, not the boilers, the top of the pistons or the high part of the wreck, Jack and Jill, you're talking yep. about there. Yep. And reaching about 90 feet, but it always seems right. But when you get to right about 70 feet deep, it all just opens up beneath you. And, yeah. you know, you can see, I, I, I got out there kind of early this year. I was out there early April. But I had some time out there with uh, Gary where, gosh, I mean, from, oh, like, once you get to that 70 feet down, it, it all opens up. And I know that from the top of the pistons, I could almost see the bow, well, what's left of it there, and everything on the stern. You know, I could see pretty much almost the entire boat from the top of the pistons there. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Now, but what we have here, you know, this, this is one of our favorite, obviously, our listeners can tell this is one of our favorite dives in the area. Yeah. 238-foot-long uh, boat went down. uh 143 years ago today, uh, Michigan Shipwreck Association posted on their Facebook, uh, 143 years ago today when the Cross Lake Steamer Ironsides plunged to the bottom of Lake Michigan just four miles off Grand Haven. Five lifeboats were put over the sides and all passengers and crew made it safely from the sinking ship. But that's when this incident became a tragedy. Of the five lifeboats, only two reached the shore intact. The other three were capsized by the surf. Um, more information about the... Uh, the Daring Rescue, the U.S. Life Saving Service at Grand Haven and residents of the area did a, quite a bit of a lot for the rescue. Um, MSRA's Facebook has a lot of pictures here. Uh, looks like stuff from Craig and Valerie diving it here. Um, but like I said that you know it was 143 years ago today when this when this happened. No one actually died on the boat in the uh, in the wreck. It was when the boats were coming into the the surf that took the and they had the loss of life. Yeah, and and there's numbers out there. the The boat is frequently buoyed. Uh, I haven't heard. Is it buoyed this year? It is buoyed this year. Yeah. Although I don't know, I don't know for how much longer. I know this is the time of year when buoys start coming in. I mean, I yeah, it's kind of like whoever put the buoy out. Uh, once you hit that September time frame, uh, when you go, if you put it out, you're bringing it back in, and so you could easily find it uh, not there. And the MSRA, which is MichiganShipwrecks.org website has an excellent write-up on it. They show you a picture of the boat, and it was one of those that had the arch in it. Uh, this is at a time when they were building uh, steam vessels, and to give it structure, because in, in Lake Michigan, uh, I've, I've known captains who have captained on the oceans and on Lake Michigan, and they will say in certain aspects, the Great Lakes are tougher to navigate on than the ocean. Our waves are quicker, shorter together, and sometimes can have larger troughs. So if you have the front of the boat and the, the aft end of the boat, on waves, and then the the mid part of the boat could be open, and it would crack a boat. So that's why you started seeing these arches, was just to give these vessels stability 
Um, and, and we really didn't have the, the naval engineering, uh, wasn't quite as refined. You're adding boilers in these boats to be able to navigate with. You know, this is a this is at the end of the uh, the time of sail when these boats went in the water. So uh, it was a 1,123 ton wood steamer, the Ironsides. Yeah. And, and you like look at he, some of the photos that they've got in here, and these are photos from the 70s because you can see the visibility. I, I think at my worst dive in the Ironsides, our visibility was better than some of these photos. Yeah, well, some are better than others. Um, no, I mean, some of the pictures I'm seeing, you look behind the diver and uh, where, Craig, where Craig's on it there, and they've got a good 60, 70-foot visibility the day, the day that day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's been, I mean, it's kind of a shame, though, because this is one of the wrecks which has really broken down a lot over the past couple decades. I gather there was a big storm came through back in the uh, late 90s that uh, pretty well knocked the chines down. Um, what you have mostly there today is, uh, of course, the boilers, Engines, pistons are all still standing there. Um, it still even has the, uh, the the walking beam, the, the pivoting derrick on the top there yet. Uh, propellers are there. The, the, the hull is there, but it's coming open. You know, it, it's really open. It's pretty much broken up and gone in the bow area. There's mm-hmm. more of it, more of it there near the stern. Um, hogging arches are all there. I guess one of them is broken, but it's the, the hogging arches are all there. Right. Uh, the uh, you know there's an awful lot of wood and you know chines and knees. The way it's opened up, it's a good example of, of really looking at the inside pieces of a boat. You know, you you, mm-hmm. you can see exactly what a chine is. You can see exactly what a knee is. You can see the rudder there, the dual propellers. Um, you know, you can see the the, the fireboxes. You know, so many times when people talk about uh, you know the boiler, they look mm-hmm. at it as all they think the boiler is. It's all there is to a steam engine. No, you have many other components there, which are which are here. You know, uh, the boiler is just the area where the the coal heated up the water to the point to where it expanded and caused. You know, and then when it expanded is when it made the power. And basically, they're they're, they're big cylinders. But you've also got the cylinder assembly. You know, where which is what's the piston move up and up down inside. Those are present here. Um, you've got the fireboxes, which is where they stoked all the coal in to make to make the water get hot to expand. Uh, you know, the complete steam engine is here, and sadly today it's all opened up, so you can get a pretty good look at it now. Yeah. So well, in in like you talk about the cylinders, this is not the cylinder you see in your car or even a large diesel engine. This is a 34 inch cylinder and had a 42 inch stroke. So these are some big guys, and they're, and they're still standing up there. Uh, you can go and see them. So it's still a great shipwreck to go and look at. Yeah, and, and you know, the, there's there are a number of examples of these of these uh, out there, but most of them are underwater. It is really cool, though. I'm going to put a little bit of a plug here for the Henry Ford Museum in uh, Detroit. They have uh, an example of this vertical steam engine. They call it vertical or steeple steam engine. They call it because in a boat. Space is at a premium, so they build the engine up, whereas a steam engine, like to run a, run a factory, is built kind of out and, and covers a lot of it, has a big footprint. But the Henry Ford Museum has one of these guys completely restored. Probably looks better than it did the day it came, that it, the day it came off of the, uh, the factory line. Right. Uh, and you can you know take a look at it and see exactly what these things would look like. You know, pre-Ziva muscles. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, all, all the woodworks on it. You know, because you know, they had areas for feeding water in the boilers and big barrels, and you know, um, there was a lot of you know things, a lot of aspects of a marine steam engine which you don't see on one that's been underwater for a hundred years. Um, but if you get if you get a chance, the Henry Ford Museum has a completely restored ship's steam engine there. So right, so very nice. Uh, if, 
Have, have you been there? Have you seen it there, Darren? Sounds like you've got to seen this. You know, I've. It's been a long time since I've been there. Uh, uh, my dad's a curator of a steam museum uh, over in Heston, Indiana. He's one of the curators for the stationary exhibits. Uh, so I've, I've, I understand what you're talking about, but I, it's, it's been so long since I've been to Henry Ford, I can't re- remember that. It's uh, probably due to go and visit. Uh, the Detroit Free Press had an article on September 21st, 1864, talking about this ship and how amazing it was. So here's a here's a vessel that about the time you know Civil War was over uh, is when this vessel was in the water, and then you get to dive on it. So you get to go do a scuba dive. You know, you touch history across several generations. Uh, that yeah. that's one of my favorite things about diving is when you can do that. Now I think I'm not seeing something here, but I. Must have been a different source I read this in, but I do know that the Ironsides was built for intention to tend to be used during the Civil War. Uh, extremely overpowered ship. Um, I should think of the source I saw. I read this in. I'm not seeing it here on MSRA's site. So, so are they doing something maybe to use it to transport troops or or other objects? I believe it was meant for, support, for transporting supplies, um, but it was a very Overbuilt and very powerful ship. Um, I don't maybe a blockade runner. Mm-hmm. I do know that it, you know, not that actually the the North blockaded the South, not the other way around. But uh, I know that there were some wartime intentions for it when it was built. I'm not seeing that here. I got to think what that site was. I read that on. Yeah, well, but, I, yeah. I know that there were a couple uh, cases of the Confederates actually being in the Great Lakes trying to strike some blows. So you could have that, and, it, and another thing could just be. Part of the war effort, we had to move materials. You had, you had uh, the cycle of, of iron, mining iron in the northern uh, you know, parts of Lake of uh, Michigan. You'd be up in Lake Superior, uh, up around Houghton, getting the ore. You'd bring it down. Uh, you had the beginning of the steel industry uh, going on. You know, Michigan was a big industrial power. Uh, you know, Erie fed uh, the New York City. So there's a vital trade route that's going on. Uh, so yeah, it makes I- sense. I kind of wonder, though, if it's more like munitions and things, though, because, you know, this is a package freighter, not a bulk freighter. So it's not going to be something for hauling iron ore. It's going to be hauling for, you know, crates and barrels and bushels and things. Right. So I wonder more, like, maybe transporting, you know, war supplies or things. I know I know that was, there was it was overpowered mm-hmm. to deliver war supplies. I read that place, and it's not seeing it here. So, yeah. although Craig tends to be pretty thorough in his in his research here, so yeah, maybe what well, I what I saw before didn't have enough detail. Well, and also, it. did you read one of his books? Because this is the article on the website. You may have read it, and uh, yeah, Craig's published a few books along with Valerie. Yeah, uh, yeah and I they have some additional it. stories that might not have made it in the website. But yeah, folks, if you're if you're in this area, it's a very worthwhile dive, and it's only four miles offshore. Yeah, uh, it's, it's an area which generally has pretty decent visibility. You know, yeah. um, actually. Craig was out there, oh, about a month ago, and told me even in uh, August, with known for poor visibility, told me he had like thirty, forty foot visibility. Yeah, okay. I have, I have never had bad visibility in the Ironside. Usually, how our season goes, you know, I talked about where we would do Diamond Lake and that shipwreck. We'll usually do the Diamond Lake. Uh, we'll move out to Havana. We'll do the South Bend off of Michigan City, and then after we've got three or four dives in. We're we're starting to get our our seasoned sea legs in the Great Lakes, and it's time to go do the deeper wrecks. And at 120 feet, it's a nice, uh, still recreational wreck to go and dive. Uh, but we've dove it early in the season, late in the season, and a bad visibility day. You're you're more likely to not be able to dive it because the lake's gotten too choppy. 
than than you are to have a bad visibility day. But yeah, and I mean, and this year, I I don't know. You've seen the pictures I posted. I mm-hmm. I had close, close to 100 foot visibility on that wreck. Right. I've, I've got a picture where I, I took of the hogging arches yep. where I'm at one end, and you can see both ends of them there. And yeah, those you know, hogging arches are 100 foot long. So yeah. I, I had a beautiful dive. My first dive on it. I I came down. It's it's moored to the top of the boilers. So as you come down, you're coming down just the boiler, just that reveal of it being visible. And then you, as you, by the time you get to the boilers and the whole wreck opens up, that's great. We had one where uh, we dove and there were three boats out there. And one of them was the one that was supposed to be booing the wreck. And they were having a problem uh, catching the wreck. Well, Bob was able to snag the wreck and we dove. But that particular one, we actually had the line down and we had to go and, uh, you know, we, we had our normal scope. So instead of it being buoyed, where if you imagine the, the shipwreck sitting at the bottom and a line going directly up to a buoy, we had an anchor with your scope on. So you're swimming down 500 feet. And that was a great experience to come at the wreck uh, across the side uh, and swim up to it. So then the wreck gets exposed that way. And that was that was a great dive. The one thing about that wreck is every time I've been on it, there are tons of fishing lures and leader lines all caught in that wreck. So make sure you've got your shears or penny cutters uh, to be able yeah. to cut any of those lines. And so something which is capable of cutting that that metal line there, the fishermen use. Oh yeah, the, the, it seems like they it's like an arms war. They keep they keep getting tougher lines. Yeah, uh, I know that. They, go ahead. I was going to say tougher lines that we have to cut through. Yeah, I know that they're that right now the real hot thing is the uh, copper line. And I know it looks like it's steel because it's it's been anodized some way, which uh, you know mm-hmm. has a you know it's it's been plated. Yeah. But they're, they're using copper line. They know it has a specific sink rate, but it's something which the typical dive knife will not cut through. So well, you, you you would pretty much dull it. Uh, you're going to need to figure out some other way to do it than just cut with a dive knife. Well, uh, there are some good, there are some good tools out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there are some you know yeah. uh, good surgical shears and things, you know, but you're looking at some money for them. But, you know, you get followed up in this stuff and, you know, there have been injuries from people yep. being followed up in fishing lines. So I, I know some people will keep, uh, you know, kind of your, you know, like what you cut a nail with, a side cutter uh, to get through them. Fortunately, I, uh, it's, it's the lines I tend to get caught up is not the steel leaders or the copper leaders. It's the fishing line. But um, you, know, you just got to be prepared. So it's part of your your gear when you go out, and that's why we work our way up to it. Uh, by that time, we're we're got our sea legs going. Uh, but a nice dive, and then happy was it a, a shipwreck anniversary? Is that what we're calling this? Well, it is the anniversary of the ship going down. So, uh, for lack of a better term, yeah, shipwreck anniversary. So, although you know, a shipwreck is really not something that you celebrate. You know, <laughs> uh, you know, keep well, mind unless that, you're scuba divers. Well, yeah, but even so, you got to pay a little bit of respect here. You know, I mean, people did not actually die on this wreck, but the wreck, but the ship going down in, in bad weather was the, you know, it did cause a number of deaths. Uh, story on the boat is that it was trying to get into port there in Grand Haven, um, had really strong crosswinds, and the boat missed the channel three times. Um, you know, they get yeah. down there. You know, this is before the intervention of bow thrusters, and you've got a lot of freeboard for the wind to catch. And it's you're, you're threading a needle, you know, trying yeah. to get in that, that pierhead. And all three times, Captain had to turn around and go back out. And I guess on the third attempt, he bottomed out pretty bad. And mm-hmm. 
you know, he, he damaged the boat pretty good. Because, you know, you, when you're in the channel, the channel's all nice and dredged and deeper. Mm-hmm. But you get blown outside the channel, and now you're in that, uh, you know, more shallow water. And you, you have no choice but to put full steam to it and hope you can, you know, even though the propellers are chewing the sand, you gotta, you're trying to get turned around and get out of there. And the propellers currently are submerged up to the axles, so you're only seeing two blades, two or three blades right. on each propeller, but I submerged and buried in the sand of the axles. Um, but you can see significant damage on those propellers. You know, they, they've got the ends of them all chewed off. Like, yeah, they were, you know, being used for, for, for mining implements up there, basically. Yeah. And so. Well, so. And, and you're looking at a vessel that's 230 plus feet long. And if you have the wind that is just blowing you all around, those channels aren't dredged that wide. So it's yeah. easy for the waves, depending on the wave action is going and where the wind's coming out, that it's just hard. So you can be right in the middle of the channel at one moment and then be pushed out of it, and then you just have to deal with what you got. And if you're at that point where you're almost in. Plus what's also happening, you know, we're, we're talking the late 1800s here. 1870s, uh, yeah. Yeah, like in St. Joe. We didn't have the pier like we do now where it's Army Corps of Engineers and it's concrete and it's steel. The pier was a pier. It was a wooden dock with pilings, and the water and currents moved right underneath. You weren't really breaking much of anything. It was more something to to give you – you could line up to. And uh, dredging probably wasn't done to the extent that it is now. So that same storm that you're having a hard time getting in can also close off the mouth of that river. So there may not have even been a channel by the time he got there to go in. Mm-hmm. Very true. So, but it, it's it's given us a nice wreck to to uh, dive on. So yeah, but you know, I've heard the stories about you know the guys diving out there, pride part of the muscles, and this was the uh, wreck that they would kind of shake you down on because mm-hmm. it was very much intact and you had penetration on it. And these guys would, you know, just strap on their tanks and go inside this thing. And um, yep. I've heard a story about the visibility being so bad, one of the guys dropping down inside one of the smokestacks. Yes. And not even realizing he was in a smokestack until he's got he's got four walls around him. And he's actually in the firebox at this point. Yeah. <laughs> he, you know, so you know, things would change with zebra muscles quite a bit. So It, it has cleaned up. Uh, and also, you could also blame them for some of the, the structural damage. Other than storms, uh, you've also got the extra weight of zebra mussels on structures, which doesn't do them much good. Yeah, and that's a lot of weight. You know, those things can build up to be up to five inches thick yeah. on, a, on a wall, and that's that's a lot of weight. So uh, next week, we'll we'll go ahead and catch up. We've got an article talking about the 19th century shipwreck, the HMS Terror, uh, which its sister ship was found... Uh, in I think it was the late 90s, early 2000s, and now they think they have found the Terror, which was uh, locked in ice looking for the, was that the Northwest Passage? Uh, uh, I thought these were on the, on the, on the Antarctic. I'm not quite sure. I've got the article in front of me here. Mm-hmm. but This is the Arctic, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. And then oh. we've got uh, another shipwreck that was recently found this week in Lake Superior. Uh, the shipwreck went down in 1897, so we'll be talking about that next week to get a chance to talk to it. And then also the Uber for scuba divers. So we'll, we'll talk about that as well. If you happen to be a donator to the program through Patreon at $3 or more, you would already have these articles uh, that you could go and view and, and, and get a head, a head start on us. So if you think the show is at least worth a dollar, visit our website, click on the links over the Patreon, and select a donation. We have bottles that you can claim if you 
are so inclined or just donate. It helps us put on this program. We, As you can see, we do not have any advertisement. Uh, we're here just to help promote diving and share our love with the underwater world with you. Uh, so you can visit our website, www.scubaobsessed.com, on Twitter at scubaobsessed, and on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash scubaobsessed. Uh, if you have comments about the show, leave them at the show at scubaobsessed.com. You got anything you want to plug, Kevin? Well, I'm going to do my usual plugs. Uh, one, uh, when you're doing your research on these wrecks, uh, you know, the Internet's great but uh, you want to get new, good, solid information, you're going to have to use your libraries, and librarians are awesome. Yeah, they're also hot, too. I think all librarians are hot. Isn't that a requirement? There are are some hot librarians out there. Not all of them. Not not all of them? Yeah, not all of them, man, but there there, there are some cuties out there. But, uh, you know, hey, make sure that you you enjoy and use your libraries. Also, uh, support your local dive shops. Um, I know it's convenient and nice to buy the stuff, buy your equipment online, but it's kind of hard to get those guys online to fill your scuba tanks. So be sure to support your local dive shops. Oh, and I'm sorry, Darren. Mm-hmm. Um, I know my mom's listening all the time. So hi, mm-hmm. mom. <laughs> oh, excellent. <laughs> Glad to hear it. So, so we, that means we got at least four listeners. <laughs> up to four now. Yeah. We're up to four. Well, you, we have a, quite a few downloads, though. Quite a few downloads. Yeah, and they're, they're downloading. It must just be uh, spackle for the edges of your hard drives. Uh, thank <laughs> everybody who came into the chat room. We have Scuba Tech. We had Flyboy Ned. We had Rec Hunter. Uh, as we get into this winter diving season, we will be a little bit more consistent. We actually we, we had the audio feed going just a little bit after 9, but our normal pre-dive chatting, which you're missing if you're not visiting us in a chat room, uh, went on for about a half an hour before we started recording. These recordings, uh, hopefully I'll be able to get them out by Friday, but usually in a couple of days of recording, we'll have them there. Uh, visit our website. Uh, we'll have some more articles out there. Again, visit those Patreon links uh, and MugClub, mugclub.scubaobsessed.com. Uh, and then we didn't get a chance to talk about, uh, we got an ecological dive. I need to, get, I need to hoodwink uh, uh, Jim to come back on the program, uh, uh, Schultz, to talk about that. Uh, we have a Mug Club meeting this next week, so... We'll probably know a little more information and share that with you. So if you sure. wanted to dive with us at all, that would be a good time to go do it. You get a chance to get in the river. It, it, that is October 1st, and uh, I can't give you the exact time on it there. But I think we're talking about noon. Mm-hmm. Um, I know we have a dumpster there going to be put there by the city. Oh, excellent. So we get, we're getting a little bit of, little bit of civic support here. Mm-hmm. You know, this, this is going to come off, and it's, we're doing this rain or shine. The only thing which would hinder it would be a great deal of rain beforehand because, of course, there's safety issues with current and all that. But uh, you even know, if it's that, raining. Yeah, I'll, I'll, you know, I, don't, I don't care how much current. I might not get in the water, or at least not in the river. Of course, I've, I've been in that particular location where the river was over the, the banks. Hopefully that doesn't happen. And then uh, the chat room's asking where this at. This is in going to be in Niles, Michigan. So Niles, the city of four flags, the one of the only cities in the United States that have been uh, under rule of four different nations: the United States, Spain, France, and England. So the city of four flags there in Niles, Michigan, just north of South Bend, Indiana. It's going to be at the park. I'm trying to know what the official name of that park is. I, I would say Riverfront Park, but I don't know if that's actually it or not. If you look for look up uh, Wonderland Cinema in Niles, Michigan, and that will give you the location. We dive behind the cinema. It's a public park. Uh, if you get there early in the day, there's usually parking. If you wait till about noon on, uh, you may need to park downtown and hoof your gear over there. Uh, what we'll probably do, uh, unless we hear otherwise and watch the Mug Club website, is that we will uh, 
dive probably from the bridge on down to the train track. So there's actually a train track. And if you like uh, train collectibles, you can get some very rusted, corroded examples underneath the train track. And those are all trash, and we pull them out. So we've got lanterns, we've gotten explosives, we've gotten all sorts of things from there. So uh, there's objects that I, I may uh, try and pull out that I've neglected bringing up because, quite frankly, if I get the darn thing out, what am I going to do with it? They're just that big yeah. and ugly. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff down there. You've got old box springs and yeah. Uh, well, is it, there's a car down there. <laughs> we got a Model T down there. There is a. I have seen a steel rim, probably from a wagon wheel. Uh, there's plates. There's bricks. I tend to leave the bricks down, but you, you know, I'll, I'll, I might bring a brick up. Uh, well, I've been I, hearing about about a about a, a steel rowboat out there too. I mean, there's a or a little yeah. There's out there. there's a like, uh, pontoon boat. Uh, mm-hmm. We we have found many examples of motors. Uh, Niles, Michigan, was a fairly industrial city, and there were creative factory people who liked to go fishing who would use anything heavy enough for an anchor. So it's not uncommon to find a ten or twenty horse uh, motor that ha- has line tied to it uh, that somebody uses an anchor. I can't think that's the best example of an anchor, but people did it. And if you like fish, I always see fish there. Uh, fish yeah, are there. There's clams there. A lot of fish. Yeah. Turtles. So if you're afraid of turtles, like uh, cheese fry, he, he doesn't like them. And they're saying, could a new diver do it? Okay. My my recommendation on diving is read up. I mean, uh, w- the Mug Club is not a training agency, so we're not training. Uh, there are members who are willing to mentor. Uh, a lot of it will depend on the current. It's where I did my first river dive. Um, and... Uh, just keep within your bounds. Usually where we go in there behind the movie theater, there is a concrete culvert or drain that goes in. Uh, if you haven't done a lot of river dives, you can usually stay along shore within that, that culvert, and then you move your way out. Uh, make sure you bring your dive flag. Uh, make sure you've got proper weighting. And usually if we've got any sort of current, I would recommend adding about three to six pounds above what you normally dive with. I, I add a little more than that. I'm I'm adding like, 10, 10 to 15 pounds when I'm doing the current, just just because, you know, having additional weight does make you less efficient on air, but you're only going to be go, deep, going down about 12 feet, okay? Yeah. So you know, you're, you're going to end the dive more because your your goodie bag is full or because you're cold than because you're out of air. You know, I, the last time I dove, I was down for like 90 minutes mm-hmm. and you hit half of the 72 cubic foot tank, you know, in 90 minutes because I was only down six feet. Yeah. So. And for many people, this is their first river dive. Uh, it's not, and, and it's going to depend on the day. If we have rain three days in a row uh, within a week before the before that dive, you, you probably don't want to go in. And when you see somebody like Mac or Kevin or myself saying, you know what, I'm skipping this, that's a good indication you probably shouldn't get in the water. But if you, uh, uh, you know, while we're not instructors, we can usually tell you when it's it's going to be safe uh, yeah, to another, get in there. One more piece of equipment to bring if you're going to do it is some kind of a river stick. Uh, nice to have some kind of a spike that you can jam yep. into the ground. Yeah, and, so and a river you- stick, uh, and that's another good post that we need to do on the website, is uh, – I, I, for years, used, it was a wooden-handled uh, tool that you might use if you were chipping out rock. It was kind of like a whatever, like a rock pick, and that works well. Some people will choose to use uh, trench tools from the military. They go to a military surplus, and they'll get a trench tool. It's one of those where the shovel folds up, and you can unscrew the handle and open it up to where it's like a, 
90 degree angle from the handle to the blade. That works really well. Some guys will take that and they'll actually narrow it down because that might be wide. Uh, we've got members of the, of the mud club who have, who have welded spikes on the handles, uh, and done it that way. We've got uh, crawler tools that people have built, but it just depends on what conditions you want to go with. But something that you can uh, use to anchor yourself in the bottom, uh, and it just gives you a nice purchase. Because what happened is you can do it as a drift dive. We've done that many times, but you'll see that object that you want to go get, and if you don't have a way of slowing yourself or stopping down as you're flowing with a current, uh, then there'll be problems. Uh, if you've got, if we've had a long flooded spell where you've it's been very low visibility, very high current. You may get trees in there. And we're talking trees. We're talking 70, 80-foot trees. And those can be called strainers where uh, you get caught in one of those, and that's not a good day. But uh, we'll, we'll give you a good indication. Uh, you, you know, make sure, I guess, the, probably the most important thing to do uh, is make sure you got a dive flat. Another that's, good tool is um, I, I bring a pickaxe. I've got a, it's a yellow-handled, yeah. uh, watered at uh Mm-hmm. You no, know, two value hardware store. Yep. Um, and you know, it, it gives me an extra like two pounds when I'm down there, and it's got a blade on it, which is actually kind of nice for uh, scraping the bottom. You know, well, a lot of times you find your best stuff by it's actually just beneath the surface there. You you find a a rock which has created a depression behind it, mm-hmm. and you see one you know modern bottle sitting along behind that rock. Well, you know that rock's probably been there a while, and who knows what else is underneath oh, that yeah. bottle. So you want something you can kind of dig a little bit with. And my pickaxe, my biggest problem is being delicate enough to dig with it because, <laughs> uh, you know, it's <laughs> it, it, it kind of overachieves sometimes. But uh, you know, between my pickaxe and I have a, a ten-penny nail. Actually, Jake made us these uh, little river stick spikes. Work work pretty mm-hmm. nice, like an ice pick. Yeah, and that's. That, that, that's my my two tools. All and you want to have some kind of a goodie bag too. Oh, you, know, you gotta you have something to put the stuff in. Yep. Uh, usually kind of... don't. I've I don't use a dive light in there. If we if we we're gonna do a drift dive and I wasn't doing any collection, I may have a dive light, but that's just one too many things hanging off me to have to worry about. Uh, so I, I tend not to do the dive light. Maybe my backup dive light if you want to look in a crevice. Um, uh, I, I've got a I've got a dive light that'll either strap to my hand so I'm not gonna drop it. It's, it's on mm-hmm. the backside of my hand or I have a, a mask that has some lights on it. I use that sometimes. I, I like the light because that shows a lot of glass down there. And whether you're looking for glass or not wanting to cut your hands on jagged glass, it's kind of nice to see that glint before you stick your hand in there. So uh, me, I'm, I'm just grabbing it all. Yeah, who cares <laughs> about glass? Just bring it in. All right. <laughs> so, and it's ecology dive. So I don't know if we're going to do the contest this year or not. Uh, but what we have done is come up with a point scoring system uh, where different objects are worth different amounts. So maybe we'll do that. If nothing else, uh, maybe the Scuba Obsessed will sponsor something and we'll give people who end up showing up some sort of credit and maybe the top people in different categories can get something. But it's a, it, this is, this, you're going to, we, when you look at the Facebook page for the Mud Club, that is objects many times that are coming from that spot, and there's many collectibles. And, again, you go to Patreon, and you're going to see some of the collectibles that we've pulled from that spot. And we're just here this time to pull those up and trash. There's plenty of trash, modern and, you know, and ancient. Yeah, you know, keep in mind the things that you're seeing on the Facebook, those are – well, some of the things you're seeing as far as Patreon, those are the trophy, you know. Yes. Uh, there have been guys who've hunted this area for years and did not find a hutchie. Okay, like I myself have yet yet to. I've not found a hutchie either. You know, I, I'm not 
bottle hunting is not, I, I do it, but that's not my primary focus. And I've never found a Hutchie, you know, uh, but then you get others like, you know, Mary Beth. I mean, she just takes her nephew that are walking by the, by, by the beach, by the shore, and then they find better stuff than any of us have ever found out of there, you know? So there, there, there's just a lot, anything that somebody threw in the water, it's down there. And it comes from we, the Niles, Michigan is downstream from South Bend, Indiana. South Bend is the South Bend of the St. Joe River. That's how it got its name. So years of stuff being thrown there. A bottle can travel a long way. And when you get the erosions from hard uh, storms, uh, they will come down. And your original dumping places for trash 150 years ago was the river. So as the, your your river meanders and changes its uh, channel, it dredges up all these things that were once thought to be lost. So we're going to pull them out as, as trash, and some of it may be treasure. And what makes this area so special is the visibility, because you've got a you know a lot of gravel beds you know going mm-hmm. quite a ways up river from here. So by the time the water comes through this area, you know it's it's not crystal by any means, but it's substantially better than you find in most rivers. I mean, uh, you know, They're down the- down south, you know, down in the lower half of Michigan, uh, you get up around Sheboygan and some of those places. Uh, usually, if the if a river doesn't have a paper mill on it and it's just a natural river. In northern Michigan, those are very clear. If you got a paper mill or some industrial, uh, no, not not picking on those uh, industries, but it tends to be a little crappy. Uh, and and with the with the sand bottom and the gravel, if you get in a day and you have full sunlight at noon, it can be beautiful. Yeah, and you know, the, and the way the bottom works here, uh, you know, quite often we find bottles buried in the sand and gravel. You pull them out, and they're quite clean. Um, you know, generally, when you're grubbing for bottles in a lake, uh, you know you pull them out, and you've got the you know the incrustations of the of the a hundred years on them, and they can look look pretty gnarly. But yep. you know, not always. You know, you know, we 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 get some nasty ones out of here too. But yep. I have found some that you know, yeah, we're a little ways down in the gravel, but they look like they were just minted the other day. I mean, yep. they're, they're clean as could be. You, you know, you have so. some which we call privy quality, meaning that. If you're a bottle collector, the the honey spots or the old privies where people would uh, a, a two hole or outhouse where somebody would throw their bottle in, those can be mint condition. And occasionally we can find those. If you had something that was part of a dump site and it got covered up immediately after being thrown in the water, you'll get that quality. Uh, and then you also get some of them that have been tumbling around for a hundred years. So uh, and we'll look accordingly. Yeah. Well, thanks thanks for the comments. Uh, in the chat room, and if you if you want to go, just watch the Mug Club website, listen to the podcast. As it gets closer, we'll give you some more information. If you're in the Niles, Michigan, which is southwest part of Michigan, you may want to go and help us out. It'll be fun. You get to meet us. You, I'll be there. Kevin will be there. Jim Schultz will be there. Mac will certainly be there. Um, and we'll have a great time, and you get to clean up the river at the same time. If you are in the area of Ottawa, Ohio, near the Gilboa Quarry on October 7th through the 9th. You may want to come and visit. We have the Great Lakes Wrecking Crews Fall Meet and Greet. Also need to thank a couple of our Patreon supporters. We have Scott Holpert and Vanessa Homiak, who are at that Dive Nitrox level, so we certainly appreciate you continuing to to the show. So are you ready, Kevin? I think we're to that time of the show. I'm ready. Bring it on, Darren. Uh, here we go. Simon's motor motor has broken down. His wife, Maria, keeps dropping hints about getting fixed before the grass grew too tall. 
But the message wasn't getting through, and Simon kept procrastinating, putting off doing the repair. Frustrated, Maria decided that she thought it was a clever way to make her point. When Simon arrived home from work, he found Maria sitting in the grass, clipping it by hand with a tiny pair of scissors. Simon, totally amazed, watched silently for a few minutes. He went in the house, appeared a few minutes later with her toothbrush. He handed it to her. When you're finished cutting grass, you might as well sweep the sidewalks. Ouch. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah, you might not be able to get out of the house, or you might be permanently out of the house for that one. Mm-hmm. It kind of resembles a little bit here. My mower broke, and so I kind of relate to that story. Not that my wife has been out with the with the scissors. <laughs> Ouch. Ah, cool. So, until next week, go out there and get wet. Stay safe. Recording has been completed.